everyone doing today? <sighs> it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Sunday, isn't it? <laughs> um, so glad to be with you today. You have an incredible pastor, amen? And what it, let me just brag on your staff. Pastor, if he's watching, you have an incredible staff here. Can we just give it up for them right now? Just the excellent, the hospitality. They gave even me code signs in case some of you cause trouble. I can have security come race up and rescue me. I don't... I don't know if trouble follows me everywhere or if that's what they're anticipating this morning, but um, it is so wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to be anywhere after um, a night like that. Before I get going, let me just give you a couple of things. I usually do this somewhere because, I don't know, it's probably self-serving, but if you're taking notes, let me give you three dates, super important, three things. It might be the most important part of the message. One, um, April 18th, it's coming up. It's my birthday, and... Just want everyone to know you've got about 19 days to come out and figure, and I saw some of the Culver's, Starbucks gift cards are amazing, so uh, feel free to go ahead and drop those off at the church. They'll have my address. They can just mail those. Um, second date is February 25th, and it is my spiritual birthday, and so you already missed that one, so you, got, you can redeem yourself on this 18th coming up here, um, but it was in 1990 that... Uh, a small little youth group of about 30 kids began to pray. They said, tell me one person in your life that you know that would never give their hearts to Jesus. And lo and behold, my name began to come up <laughs> as this kid who went to the public schools and said, Kevin Ramsby. And a um, small little youth group of about 30 began to pray, found myself coming in the doors of a church Gave my life to Christ at a Phil Driscoll concert. Anyone ever hear Phil Driscoll? Never listen to him again. Don't know anything about him. I just felt like, hey, he sounds kind of like Michael Bolton. Sounds kind of cool. And uh, anyways, uh, he shared and uh, gave my heart to the Lord. And so uh, this year, I turned actually 29 years old. I'm like, wow, man, I'm getting, I'm a millennial. And then, um, and then April 4th um, of this year, so if you missed it, 19th, not enough time, I'm giving you a third opportunity, um, April 4th, I will be turning 10 years old, and so if I'm a little immature up here, I always blame it on that aspect. I'm only 10, just give me a break. Um, 10 years old is, is from the night that that took place. Uh, I know some of you are like, that's 10 years ago, but for me, it's like yesterday, and um, you know, it took, many, it took a few years for there to be the closure with the trial and all those type of things and the um, sentencing, but um, it'll be a kind of a 10-year um, milestone for me. Um, we've been, my wife and I, Sarah, my wife's here. Yay! She's beautiful. Um, we, um, that night forever changed our lives when you hear glass breaking at 3 in the morning and you race down and I did, like, I picked up the best weapon in my house, a tennis racket, and went to confront him. Um, I thought I would have a good backhand, and that didn't work at all. And uh, um, the knife against the tennis racket didn't work in my favor. And as I was racing down again, as the video said, I launched myself to tackle the guy, and his first stab went right into my abdomen as I went to grab hold of his shoulders. And I'll never forget just looking at him and just knowing that this guy was obviously on drugs, um, being in the city for now um, over 20 years. I've dealt with a lot of addicts and people who are high on crack or meth or heroin, and I knew this guy was high and was began to wrestle with him and just trying to confront him and tell him to get out of my house. Um, that first wound to my abdomen was kind of a game changer. I fell on the ground, and the guy just was relentless. And all I could say is this, 
I, I remember when the police asked me to describe this guy, I was like, he was like a pit bull. He just would not let go. I fell to the ground. He jumped on top of me. He just began just over and over and over. I began trying to block myself. And as the video said, there was at one point when the knife came down, I grabbed the blade. And when I grabbed hold of the blade, the entire blade came off of the handle and broke. And so I had the large blade about that fat and about that long. I had that in my hand. And I began to, again, to try to get him off me, began fighting back, trying to stab him to get him off me. But the problem was is I was using the blade as the handle and the, the sharp knife went through my thumb and cut all my nerves and tendons to the point that I couldn't grip anything and it fell off. And this guy was just, you know, he was just possessed. And he went and I remember as he went to retrieve the knife after it fell out of my hand, I rolled over and it was at that moment, uh, we have this dog, her name was Maggie. It was a, about an 80 pound black lab, 70, 80 pound black lab. And I just remember on the ground and like looking up and seeing this dog right there and I was just like, why aren't you doing anything? I'm like, you're a mutt. And I was like, I feed you and walk you and bathe you and, you know, love on you and rub your ears and, and get your leg going. And I was like, and you're doing nothing. I mean, it was, it was the darkest moment because for me to be in a place where, you know, life has just blindsided you and now there's no help. Have you ever been there before? Where it's like you're just left like on your own. Even the dog doesn't help. The man began dragging me to the kitchen and the last time when he asked where the keys are money, I remember looking up with him and I was just so angry at this moment because I knew that this guy, um, he's destroyed my life. You know, pastor in 21 years in the city, we had just moved into the neighborhood of our church. We had just invested everything we had financially into this home to make it our home in the hood. <laughs> I mean, it was just gorgeous, three stories, wood floor. It was basically given to us. I mean, and now, nine months after being in this house, I'm laying there bleeding to death in my kitchen floor that we had just spent everything redoing the floors. And I'm just, it was just... I just remember looking up at him and saying, it doesn't matter no more where the keys of the money are because I'm dead. I knew, I, was, I knew life was over. And it was at that moment, I do what probably all of us do, right? When things get beyond our control, our circumstances, what do we do? We pray, right? <laughs> and I began to pray, and I began to pray. And my prayer, I don't know what you would pray. This, let me ask you this. What would you pray in a moment like that? Put yourself in a place there's no help, not even your dog is helping you out, no one to cry out, your family's not there, you're left alone dealing with what life has thrown at you, what the enemy has thrown at you, and now it's like you and God and you're basically like tapping out. And I just remember just praying, here's what I prayed. I didn't pray, God, come save me, rescue me, let my dog man up, I mean, I, I just... There was one thing that was on my mind. It was this. It was, God, let me know that you see me now. Because if, God, if you know what I'm going through right now, then I'm okay. But if you don't know what I'm going through and you didn't see this and you were surprised and blindsided like I was, then, man, I got a problem. I don't know what to do. And so I prayed, and I was probably, I, I bet you Pastor Jim t teaches you this, you know, when you pray, how many pray specific prayers, not, not the generic, you know, so I was taught, pray specific so God can answer you. So I prayed, 
God, give me a verse. Because I knew even if God could just give me a word in that moment that I could grab on and hold on to, then, then I would be good. Because I know that he saw, he knew what I was going through. Here's your word, here's your promise. I was waiting, I was like, give me a verse. I remember <laughs> praying, God, let me see lights. And I don't know where that prayer came from. That was just totally out of my character because I don't know if I was, or not, actually it wasn't before I prayed lights, I was praying, God, let me see angels. And I was like, I didn't know if I was expecting to see people, angels darting around. I don't know what that was. Um, but then my last prayer was, God, let me see lights. And my wife always gives me a hard time. Why would you ever pray for lights? That's the dumbest prayer you could ever pray. If you see lights, you're not here. <laughs> you know, but I was desperate. I just wanted to know that God saw me in my kitchen floor, hurt, bleeding, wounded, alone, desperate. I just needed something to show me that God was there. And as I closed my eyes, here's what God showed me and said to me. And I shared this at the men's group. Nothing. God was nowhere around. God was silent. And I just closed my eyes I just began to, again, pray, and I just said, God, okay, God, let my wife know how much I love her. I remember praying for my daughter, God, just protect her from every jerk of a boy, because <laughs> I'm not going to be able to be the dad that's going to keep all of them away from her. So, God, you're going to have to be her dad now. I remember praying for my son. He was 12 at the time. And I remember praying, God, don't let Noah become angry at you. So he knows that his dad who committed his life to serving you and serve you in a place that no one is signing up to go to, no one is coming, <laughs> that following you, being obedient to your will, gets got him murdered. I just remember, and as I was praying that prayer, don't let Noah be mad, it was that moment. All I can say is those words, I, I heard them. And it was just those words. It was like my prayer was there. God, don't let Noah, they still need you. And it was like this word. It just came to me. They still need you. And it was at that moment, man, it was a game changer for me. My nickname, just so you know, in high school was Rambo. Anyone remember Rambo back in the day? I carved his name. I burnt it on my arm. And again, I could, you know, I got the, I don't remember burning it on my arm because the next day I was like, how did I get there? It was too much lemonade the night before, pre-Jesus days. <laughs> but, but I just... That's who I was. I had the mullet. I used to poof it out, blow it out, do all that good stuff. My friends were like, we would go out and just be rough in the weekends, getting our little brawls and stuff, and everyone would talk, and I'd just sit there quiet, and they're like, we don't like going out with you because we start talking. We don't want to fight. We just talk, and then all of a sudden, you bring out a bat, and you're ready to go at it. And we're like, no, 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 Kevin. But that was Rambo of me. And so when I heard those words, they still need you, it was like Rambo was <laughs> resurrected. And I just remember at that point, the guy was going through my house upstairs, and I remember just, I couldn't move before, and moments before, and all of a sudden, I was able to start getting up, and it was at that moment, I realized how bad I was wounded. The first wound to my abdomen was so bad that when I began to stand up, I realized how bad it was, because all my insides, my insides were on the outside of me. And so I had to pick them up. And you'll forever grill with tongs from now on when you have to carry insides that feel like Italian sausage and kielbasa. And I'm just kidding. That's my 10-year-old. Laugh at me. Okay, that was a bad joke. It's okay. Sorry. I try sometimes. That's the 10-year-old of me, okay? Some of you will get it later. Like, what's he talking about? <laughs> okay. Um, 
But I ended up picking up my insides and was, man, so thankfully was able to get out to a neighbor's house where they called 911 and, and rushed me to the hospital. And it was the greatest feeling in the world to wake up again two weeks later or a week or so later and just to realize that I'm still here. I'm still alive. But it was in those moments in the hospital that all of a sudden, um, things began to become difficult. Because now, not only am I alive, that was great, but now I've got all these wounds and there was a lot of things have happened and those words, they still need you. They just began to come back to me. They still need you. And it was in that moment that I realized that this person that I was gonna become for these people who needed me in life, I don't know who they were, I knew my family, I knew it was probably the people I ministered in the church and my neighbors in the city. And, but those that needed me, who I would become after this moment would largely would determine what type of person I would become to them, what type of effectiveness, what, how I would love, how I would care for, how I would speak, how I would act, how I would behave, was gonna largely determine how to, what do I do after someone hurt me and wronged me. And it's the same for you today, folks. There's gonna be people who hurt you and wrong you in life. They might not do what they did to me, break into your house, but they're gonna, they're gonna invade your life some way or another. They're gonna hurt and wound and disappoint. They might not come at you and stab you, but how many have been stabbed in the back before people with, by betrayal and dishonesty and someone has stolen before, or broken promises, broken covenants? But in that hospital room, it was there that I began to deal with these two, three important questions on my journey. And the first one was this. It was the God question. It was, God, where are you? God, where were you? Because in that moment, I prayed, God, let me, let me know that you're here. He was not there for me. And it was at that moment that a trial began to take place. It, it was a trial that... Um, I began to write about, and it's in the, my book that I put out there, it just kind of was such a healing part of my journey that I wrote to help other people on their fight to forgive. Because people talk about forgiveness is a journey, forgiveness is a process. Can I just tell you, it's a fight. <laughs> it's just, it's, it, to truly forgive, which means to let go, to cancel a debt, to drop it, to, I mean, it's done, <laughs> nothing you can do to make it right. I mean, it's, it's over. Cancel the debt. There's no record of anything owed to you. Man, it's a fight to do that, isn't it? It's not just a journey. Like, you just, oh, I hope it works out. But for me, it began with this trial, but it wasn't the trial of this guy who did this to me. It was a trial that I began to put God on. Because I was like, God, you said that you were ever present help in my time of need. Well, I was in need and you weren't there. You said that you're a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Hello? <laughs> Bro? <laughs> he wasn't there. And it was in the hospital room that God began to deal with me on this whole question because I think some of us, on the fight to forgive, when you're dealing with this forgiveness battle, it really starts with God. And it really begins to start to this question is, can you trust him? Can you trust them with the people who have wronged you? Can you trust them with the wounds that they've inflicted? Can you trust them with your tomorrow? Can you trust them with your today? Can you trust them? And God began to show me. He didn't speak to me, but he began to use people around me. 
And he began to show me how when I thought he was the farthest from me, actually he was probably closer than he ever was in my life before. My family was supposed to be home that day, but the night before, spur of the moment, last minute decision, we sent my, I sent my wife away to go to Illinois to, be with, to go pick up our kids who were supposed to come back to be with us that day. When she received that actual call from the hospital, she just went and arrived in Illinois and had only been there for a couple hours when she gets that call. And I began to think in that moment, I remember crying and telling Sarah, like, where was God? And she reminded me saying, I know it, it might seem that he wasn't far away, but look at what God did. He, he didn't have Noah and Caitlin there. He didn't have me be there. And she began to walk me through. The doctors began. I was, ended up being stabbed 37 times. And they began to go through how the one that missed my eye and went to the temple, two through the throat, one to the heart, and my heart chest was all a bruise, and the six to the spine that were the worst. And I just remember sitting here, and they were like, if one was to the left, right, a little deeper, you're paralyzed, you're blind, you bleed out. But it was almost as if somehow there was like some limits, and God somehow protected you from what the enemy was trying to do, Right? And so there was almost like there was some restraints, and they were like, we don't understand. It was almost like a miracle that this could happen. And then they said, the detectives, how the knife broke. And I'm like, that was not God. That was me. These are abs of steel, and when that knife hit this abdomen. <laughs> I'm not kidding. If there was a recording in my house, all of a sudden, you would have just heard us ching, and it would just vibrate. And then when I grabbed that knife, I just said, forearm power, snapped it, and I was like, that was nothing of God. That was all me. So I was like, God, that's not a miracle. That's not your side. So, But then they began to say this. How did you get to the kitchen to your neighbor's porch? And I go, what do you mean? And they said, we just don't understand because we saw where you must have lost consciousness. There was a huge pool of blood. It spilt over, covered the first two steps. And we saw you stood up there. You used a wall to balance yourself. But from your kitchen to your neighbor's porch, there's no footprints, there's no blood evidence, there's no drops of blood from your kitchen to the neighbor's porch. And when we found you and they began to radio in for the police to come and they asked what race he was, they go, we don't know what race he is because I was just head to toe in red. And they didn't know if I was white, black, Hispanic. They just go, we don't know what race he is. But yet there was nothing there. And I just realized, you know what, sometimes... The issue in our lives when we doubt where God is and his presence, really the issue is, is we expected and we prayed and asked God for one thing, and the real issue is he didn't give us what we wanted or we thought we needed. See, I prayed lights, angels, uh, uh, um, you know, a verse, and God said, I don't need those. What you need is family not to be there, knife to break, you to get to here. The biggest miracle is the police made it there in 90 seconds. That's the biggest miracle in Detroit. <laughs> but all of a sudden I realize, man, when's the last time I thank God for unanswered prayers in my life? See, some of you are praying prayers right now, and the issue is this, is they're not meant to be. You don't want God to answer those prayers. He's doing things that you don't see, you can't comprehend, and I want you to know that he's for you and not against you. He's not hiding from you. He's not running from you. He's not abandoning you. Listen, he's working because he's faithful because you are his child. And so I realized, listen, God was there. The second question I had to deal with is what do I do with the um, man who inflicted all this? Well, how many know what we should do, right? What's the word? It's the F word. What do we call, what's the F word? Some of you men with potty mouths, be careful. What's the F word? 
forgive. Bible says this, Ephesians 4.32, says to be kind to one another, forgiving one another. But here, here's the thing. This is the problem. This is where we miss it in the church. We stop right there. We believe that our job in life and as a Christian and believer is to forgive. It's not. You're not called to forgive. To forgive, to cancel debt, to let it go. You're not called. How many are glad that you don't have to forgive today, amen? That's good news. No. Keep reading. It says forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. See, that's the problem with the church today is we stop. We say forgiveness, we're just supposed to forgive, and it's almost like it becomes an option based on their responses and what they say or what we do. And I'm just going to tell you, it has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with you. It has everything to do with what God has done in your life. So it says, forgive just as God in Christ forgave you. How many have been forgiven by God? How many have said, God, forgive me, and then all of a sudden you do the same thing you've asked forgiveness, you did it again? Did he still forgive you? How many know that God doesn't put you on probation? He doesn't operate on a three strikes, three, you're out of here type of mentality like some of us do in life. He never, he, he always forgives. He fully forgives. Every time God forgives us, when we come to him and we say, God, we're sorry, forgive us. And that's, and I'm so thankful that I think God's forgiveness is so great in my life that there's moments that I don't even know that I've blown it and he still forgives me because we're in relationship. Hebrews 10, 17 talks about this. It says, and I will remember their sins no more, that God even goes one step further, that he goes on and he, um, he, he talks to us about forgiveness, and that it's possible to forgive and forget. I'm not gonna be able to have time to go into it now, but that's why I shared with the men about forgetting, forgiving and forgetting. What does it mean? Paul says, forget the things behind me. You, it is possible to forget. It's not an amnesia. To forget with God, it means this. It means to no longer be influenced or affected by something. It means that with God that your past sins will not influence his attitude towards you, affect your standing with him, or change how he feels about you. That's what forgiveness, the forgiveness we experience for him, it's not just the canceling of a debt, but there's also this, it no longer affects us or influences the relationship. And the goal in forgiveness is for us to not only forgive someone, but then to run in the lead in our journey, in our, our race after Christ, that the people who've wronged us and hurt us always stay in second and third and fourth and fifth place in our journey, in our race. But some of you are being led by parts of our story, sons and daughters who've you know, disappointed us, wronged us, went down a wrong path, leaders who have failed us. We're allowing them because we have not let it go, canceled the debt. They're now leading our race. And they're controlling how we run after God. And so I don't have time to go into this. But I want to deal today, and I don't really share this, but I want to share this. This might be the first time I really shared this in a Sunday morning. But the third question I began to deal with over time was this, is, was where did the thoughts of ending my life come from? Because after this journey, as time went on, I began to find something was growing inside of me. I began pacing up and down the streets, retracing the steps of the blood trail of the guy because I was able to stab him and hurt him. And I would retrace the steps, and I was like, I heard him, I want him to come back. It took months for them to find him, and I was like, I want him to come back because I don't have that dumb dog no more. I have something better, and it's not a tennis racket. I wanted him to come back. I would drive around the city looking for this man, hunting for this man, I remember finding a guy that looked like him, raced in, got the chief of police. They all raced, surrounded him. Wrong guy. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, 
what's going on? And then one day I'm driving down the highway, seven, highway 75 right before the Davidson Freeway, and all of a sudden this thought was, kill yourself, drive into the overpass, just kill yourself, end your life. I'm like, God, what is going on with me? What is going on? You know, have you heard the phrase, does time heal wounds? How many know that's false? I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I've learned now what, while those who speak about one's miseries usually hurt, but those who keep silence in silence hurt more. And I began to understand this journey of forgiveness, that there was something festering inside of me that I just couldn't get a hold of. Let me take you to a passage of scripture here. It's, it's found in 2 Samuel 17. It's a story of a man named Ahithophel. Some of you may not, but I didn't understand what was going on to me until I read this passage, until I saw it right in the word of God. Here's what the story says. It says, now Ahithophel urged Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men to start out after David tonight. This is when King David and his son Absalom, they had kind of parted ways. Absalom's trying to become the king, steal the king from David. They're now in conflict. Absalom now is out after the throne, okay? So there's a problem going on, okay? It says this, and then Ahithophel comes. Let me choose 12,000 men to start out after David. I'll catch up with him. While he is weary and discouraged, he and his troops will panic, and everyone will run away, and then I will kill only the king. He was going to kill King David. And I will bring all the people back to you, Absalom, as a bride returns to her husband. After all, it is only once, it is only one man's life that you seek. Then you will be at peace with all the people, and the plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. So this man, Ahithophel, he's this counselor. He comes and he tells Absalom, let me go kill David. You want the king? You want David out of the picture? I will go kill him. Let me go with 12,000 men. I'll only kill him. Everyone will come back, and they will lift you up as king. Sounds like a great plan, they said. They began to have discussion about this plan that Ahithophel had come up with. And in 2 Samuel 17, 23, now it says this. When Ahithophel realized that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey, went to his hometown, set his affairs in order, and hanged himself. He died there and was buried in the family tomb. Do you see that? Ahithophel, when he didn't get what he wanted, when, how many has ever given advice to someone and they didn't follow it? Like, let's, how many have given advice to your kids and they don't do what you say? They say, how many here when they go, oh, you didn't clean your room? Oh, I'm going to go and hang myself now. Like, can you see like overreaction there? I mean, like, you don't go and do something like Ahithophel. You don't saddle up your donkey, put your house in order because the boss didn't listen to my advice today. Life is over. <laughs> So something obviously was going on in this man's life so that when he wasn't given permission to kill David, he took his own life. Well, let's find out who this Ahithophel was real quick. There's a couple clues. 2 Samuel 15, 12, 16, 23. I'm going to spare time reading the verses. We realize this, that Ahithophel was, in the beginning, David's counselor. It says that he was David's counselor, and the advice that Ahithophel gave was like one who inquires of God. So 
when it began out, Ahithophel was used to be Team David before he became Team Absalom. He was Team David. He was his counselor. Everything he gave to David, David took like this was God speaking. He was that important, that close to King David, the man after God's own heart. So clue number one was this. He was David's counselor. Everyone know how many know that's a pretty important position? How many would like that position? I would. The second clue was this. He was a father. 2 Samuel 23, 8 through 30, it names that one of his sons, his name was Eliam, was one of David's mighty men. So Ahithophel's son used to fight for King David. He would risk his life. He was one of David's mighty warriors and men that would go out and put himself out there on the front lines and, and risk his life. That was Ahithophel's son. Not only was he David's counselor, giving him a great advice, his son was also team David, was risking his very life every single day for David. Clue number three comes in scriptures in 2 Samuel 11, that Ahithophel was a grandpa. How many grandparents out there? Isn't being a grandparent wonderful? Whew, I'm not there, but I see how you enjoy when it's like not your kids and it's the grandkids. <clears throat> well, 2 Samuel 11 says this. And someone said, is, not, is this not? Oh, I'm sorry, I should be doing my slides. Oh, are you with me? Hold on. I forgot that there's, I'm in control of this. There we go. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? All of a sudden, it starts coming together. David, who once was David's counselor, Ahithophel was once David's counselor. His son was one of David's mighty men. His granddaughter was Bathsheba. And what happened to Bathsheba? David, who was Ahithophel's Ahithophel's king and pastor went and slept with granddaughter. David, the one that his son is risking his life for fighting, went and slept and set up a big storyline to protect his innocence and reputation and goes out and has the granddaughter's husband murdered. Then they have a baby, so really he becomes a great-grandfather in a sense, but not by you know, as Bathsheba has this baby that was born from David's adulterous affair, and then that baby dies. And then all of a sudden, you just read this. That's Ahithophel's story, but somewhere along the line, Ahithophel jumps from Team David to Team Absalom. And now, all of a sudden, we have this whole picture played out to us. Why was there a hanging? Because Ahithophel, he loved his family. Ahithophel trusted his leader, why was there hanging? His leader failed and sinned. His leader hurt those he loved. Why was there hanging? I believe this is because he was unable to forgive, to let it go, to cancel a debt. And that unforgiveness then turned into something greater. It turned into bitterness. And then personal bitterness turns into a public mission for Ahithophel that is now centered on revenge and payback. And sadly, when he's unable to get even, Ahithophel decides life isn't worth living anymore. The takeaways I have from this hanging man in the fight to forgive was time doesn't heal wounds. It's important to forgive and forgive quickly. And if you don't forgive quickly, time's not going to heal wounds. 
it's going to allow there to become a bad root to begin to grow in your life that will eventually produce bad fruit. See, we think that the bad fruit for unforgiveness is anger. No. I can show you in scriptures that when you don't forgive quickly, immediately, fully, that root is beginning to grow. It's going to produce something over time. But the fruit of that unforgiveness, which is now becomes the fruit of the tree of bitterness. Actually, the Bible talks about the root of bitterness. I can show you in pictures that leads to suicide. I can lead that, show you that it leads to sexual addiction or immorality. I can show you in scriptures that it leads to prejudices and division in church. All because conflict, offense, not resolved, not forgiven. And the sad part is, people need you. And they're going to taste and see that God's good, but they're tasting of trees. And there's tasting of a bitterness that some of us are just bearing in our lives. There's a passage that I hung into that God began to give me on my recovery and journey. It's Genesis 50, 20. It says, you intended to harm me. It's one of the most misquoted verses. People quote, it's the devil. Satan intended what the devil meant for evil. What Satan, what Lucifer meant. No, no. It's Joseph talking to his brothers. It's Joseph talking to the people up close to his life who hurt him and wronged him. It's the ones who pushed him in the pit. And it's the ones that pushed him in the pit actually 49 years earlier. And 49 years have passed, and he's looking at them after his dad died. He says, you intended to harm me. You, Reuben, Simeon, Judah, you intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, when you face this fight to forgive and you can learn how to run from the lead and you can learn to, to overcome fear instead of running away, begin fighting for something, when you can learn what it takes to, 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 to hang on to him and run fast and hard after Jesus, he's your focus. When you can choose to let it go then you are giving yourself and you're giving God an opportunity to open the most amazing doors in your life, to discover the purposes and plans he has for you. Some of you feel like there's this wall to, why don't I understand God's purpose? I know he wants to do something within me, but you're like, I don't understand. Well, here's my question. Do you have unforgiveness still in your heart? <laughs> do you have a root of bitterness that's producing some wrong fruit? Because I'm telling you, God can't open the doors to all that he has for you if, it's, if you're producing bad fruit. People need you. It all made sense to me. In 2015, I stepped down from the church I was pastoring at that we had been there for 12 years where this attack happened. And I thought really ministry for me was over, to be honest. I quit, I walked away, and I said, God, I don't, I'm gonna make room for you, but city ministry, the inner city, it's... I just think it's over. And after a year and a half of writing and just pouring out my life to God and just sitting with him, God just began to resurrect a dream in my heart for the inner city of Detroit. And I was like, God, I don't know if I can go back. It's been tough. I've done so many funerals of people murdered, shot in their head. I mean, it's just, it's, it's hard. It's difficult. My life, my family has been affected. God, you really want me to go back? He's like, yep. 
And I want you to go back and I want you to plant a church this time. Start a church. It had been over 23 years since the last church plant in this area of its kind. And I said, okay, God, I'll start from scratch. And all of a sudden, God just began to do this work and the vision and the heart came as this church called Arise Church because the story of how God has caused us to rise up out of this dark season of our lives. We were like, God, let's be a church that unites people right on the eight-mile eight mile divide. How many have heard of Eminem? Yeah? You shouldn't be listening to him. He's bad. He's... We planted a church right on the eight-mile divide, and we said, God, we're going to want people come together. And we said our vision and our heart was to awaken just one more person to Christ. I don't care about the church size, the congregation. If we can win one more to Jesus that's far away than God then it's gonna be all worth it. All this pain, all this suffering, all this process, we lost everything. We went bankrupt. We moved four times in five years. The innocence of our kids was stolen. I have four feet scars over my body. The five years of sleepless nights, it was just, it was hell. And I said, God, if you can take all of that and do what you did in Joseph's life, then God, I'll go. <laughs> A year and a half ago, we started Arise Church in Detroit's only movie theater. Just a handful of us. Right now, there's over 100 people worshiping in the movie theater right now on 8 Mile as we're sitting here together. And you see some of those faces there. The top corner officer, George, he was one of the police officers who came to Christ who found me on the porch that night. See the guy over here? His name's Darren. He was the one who I got to call it five in the morning from a mom that they jumped his son in a store and they beat him up and she's afraid for his life and the guy agreed to meet with me for three hours in a Coney Island in Detroit in an area that he would be not targeted and I wouldn't be targeted. Met with him, led to Jesus, helped him find a job, got out of the drug dealing business that was getting him in trouble, is now helping him or mentoring him to become a father. I mean, it's amazing what God's doing. This man here, Officer Cook, served in the war, was blown up, and his Humvee was a, was a p police officer, saw our story online and said, I'm going to go to that. There was him and his wife, actually him and his girlfriend showed to the church, began attending. They give their hearts to the Lord, and they go, we're living together. And so we, just six months later, we end up doing a private wedding ceremony for them. And now this guy and his family are all saved and now walking with Jesus. Then there's this guy, Frank. <laughs> who's got a name and then everyone knows him in the city of Detroit. He was like kind of the party dude in the city of Detroit. He showed up today right when we were done setting up this morning before racing up here and he's helped every week. Has not missed a service. And I sit here and I go, God, what would have happened if I chose bitterness, holding on to unforgiveness? Here's what happens. Now those people that need me, that screen would be empty today. There's people today that, doggone it, they need you to let something go. Some of you are holding on to a grudge that you've held on for so long and you want to be right. Listen, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I just preached this a couple weeks. First time I said, you know, it's the only saying on the cross of his last sevens that the Bible says over and over he said that. Jesus on the cross as he's dying. Just remember this this Easter. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They put the nails in his hands. Father, forgive them, for they not know what to do. They're gambling for his clothes. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They're mocking. Father, forgive them, for they know what to do. Over and over, the Bible says, he, he utters those words. 
Because in the fight to forgive, it's never a one-time choice. It's something you're going to have to do daily. It's called running from the lead in your life to forgive. That's why the disciples, their big issue was, how many times do we forgive them? Listen, win the fight to forgive. There's people who need you. Would you just bow your head and close your eyes for a second? If you're here today, you'd say, listen, the Holy Spirit's speaking to me. There's, there's a part of my story. There's a person. There's an event that's happened. To be honest, it's leading my life. I think about it. I meditate on it. It's, it's affected me. I, I, I frequently say, if they would have just done this, or if they would own up, or if they would be responsible, if they would just say they're sorry, if they would just pay back. Listen, you haven't letting it go. You haven't canceled the debt. If you're here today and say, I'm struggling with this I'm losing my fight to forgive. And today I want God to give me his power and grace to forgive. How does he do that? He's going to remind you of how much you've been forgiven. If you're here today and say forgiveness, unforgiveness is leading my race. Maybe there's bitterness. Maybe you have an addiction and you can say like, I sure have a lot of unforgiveness in my life. Maybe the breaking the addiction in your life is, is really uprooting the bitterness in your life. Some of you, it's depression. Why are you so depressed? Maybe there's a root of bitterness that's been going. There's forgiveness that has not been, not been pronounced. There's an issue that is not being, being reiterated over and over again, constantly, and you're losing that fight, and now the depression is linked to this bitterness right now. God says, today, I want you to experience freedom. If you're here today on the count of three, if that's you, or maybe you have never experienced God's forgiveness. That's the starting point. And you'd say, I need to be forgiven in that kind of way, fully forgiven. My sins remembered no more. That's why he died on the cross, so that you could receive that type of forgiveness, but so then you can also be empowered to give it the same way. But if you're here today, whether you need forgiveness or you need to forgive someone else, if that's you, in the count of three, I want to pray with you. Would you slip your hand up one? two, three, if that's you, put your hand up. I'm going to look over at the left and just put your hand up. I want to see, yep, 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 yep. Middle section here, is there anyone? Yep, 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 hands, yep, I see you. Put up real big in this middle section here, if that's you, unforgiveness, there's bitterness, something that's not being let go, you know it's there, yep. Anyone else? Far right, yep, 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 yep. I want to pray for you today, and here's my prayer. That God would empower you to forgive as you've been forgiven. And as that takes place, you would feel like there's this freedom in your life that now is going to lead you to your greatest tomorrow. That's what's happening at Arise Church in 8 Mile and what's happening. And I believe it can happen right here in Fenton. Father, for all those who raise their hands, God, you reveal to them how much they have been forgiven. Help them remember and recount, God, your faithfulness in, the, in your forgiveness for them. And God, I pray as they begin to focus on that and as they begin to forgive from the cross looking forward, that for those people that they are struggling with and those events in their stories and their past that are leading their lives, that are influencing their lives, I pray in the name of Jesus, you would empower them to forgive and to let it go and to cancel the debt not out of their own strength, but out of what they freely receive from you that cost a whole lot. And they would be able to utter those same words, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they do.
They have no idea the hurt, the pain, the disappointment, the cause. But God, forgive them. And God, as you cause those to forgive others, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would push them forward and promote them forward. God, for the greatest purposes of their life and the greatest purposes of this body in Fenton. God, let this church not be known as the house of the forgiven, but let it be known as the house of the forgiving. And we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much. Amen.